in the book Born for Dead by Lori Guns, reading chapter one. Now I'm reading this book, and you're going to hear the voice go round and round. And using, maybe I should take the phone out of the, the case. Let me see if that works. Just record it. I'm not recording with any microphone. Probably I should not think I have a microphone upstairs. Well, on it. Alright, I wasn't able to find the mic that I bought, but I know I have a, a mic somewhere about the place. I'll look for it. But interestingly, just as I started, um, it's, a, uh, it's a good thing that I'm using the recording feature to record this, recording this as an audio and then uploading it because as soon as I started, as I put this on pause actually, well, the fact that I wasn't able to put it on pause as opposed to it, where I can't um, do it, pause it um, using the app directly. So um, I put it on pause and a phone call came in. So if I was doing it directly from the phone, that phone call would have interrupted the whole situation. So I think this is the way I'm going to do it from now on. Hopefully I get some mic and get better quality. But let me go to part one of Born for Dead from Babylon to Brooklyn. The five men from the rink are supposed to carry baseball bats. So, oh, I, part one. Chapter 1 for the book Born for Dead from Babylon to Brooklyn. That's the name of the chapter. The firemen from Rinkers Posse carried baseball bats, flashlights, and a set of chains into the basement of the derelict building on Pacific Street in Brooklyn. It was just before Christmas 1986. The basement was cold, dark, and empty, except for a broiler. A boiler. The men were bundled in hooded sweatshirts and a triple fat goose down trench coat and the triple fat goose down trench coats that they were then the what is then the regular the regular the regular d-e-r-i-g-u-e-u-r the regular for crack dealers who had to spend long nights on freezing streets they would go home up later after tonight's mission was accomplished, to change into silk and linen for the dance at Love People One, Love People One, Love People One, the Rankers' favorite disco on Empire Boulevard. The youth they had come to discipline, covered in the corner by the boiler, already pleading for his life. At 17, Norman Alwood was the Rankers' youngest soldier, an African American Yankee boy among Jamaicans. He had been nothing but a liability to Delroy Uzi Edwards, the Rankers done. Chronically shorting Edwards on money and stealing crack from the Rankers stash. A few weeks before this night, Alwood had failed to deliver $400 he owed to Uzi and Uzi shot him in the leg. A favorite punishment as a warning. Alwood hid from him after that, going down Going down out, going down out of sight on the floor of the apartment, he shared with his sister Janet when Delroy cruised the street in his black Mercedes Benz. But now the kids' luck had run out. Dane Trail, one of Delroy's cousins, held a gun to Norman Alwood's Alwood while he begged for mercy. Trail had a reputation as an enthusiast, enthusiastic disciplinarian, a loyal, a soldier loyal to his don. But he too would die soon in an successful Renkers bid to take over a rival passes crack spot in Brooklyn. Conroy Green, a soft spoken, bespectacled be, be gang member, was down in the basement with his fellow Posse troops. The memory of Alwood's terror that night would come back to haunt him, along with remorse for his own cowardice. The kid kept crying, Dan, help me. You know better than to think that I would steal, and Dane was just looking at him. Blank, like, you're not talking to me. So I figured if he knows the kid this well and he's just going to let him do that to him, what do you, what do I, why, what do I look like talking up to him? So I kept my mouth shut. I had to tie him up. Well, I felt I knew it was wrong. I, it felt, I felt wrong. Really and truly, I thought they were just going to give him a little beating, a spanking. 
This was the first time I saw Delroy and them discipline somebody. I didn't know they were going to end up killing the guy. They didn't know. He just died on them while they were trying to get information from him. Delroy Woozy stood off to one side watching. He was in his late 20s then, an handsome man whose eyes had already acquired a far away, affectionless gaze of someone used to kill him. Short and stocky, with a body bulked up from lifting weights. Delroy had earned his name from the gun he favored, and his reputation from his days as a mercenary in Kingston. On the crumbling bullet pocket cr concrete walls of Southside, the war-torn ghetto where the Renka's posse was born, whose name was scrawled in green, the color of the Jamaica Labour Party. It was the JLP that had given him his first job on the Southside rank as a Southside ranking. The party hired him for a price of ten dollars a week during the 1980 election campaign to shoot up PMP out of the Southside part of the neighborhood that was Michael Manley's own constituency. When I met Delroy a few, late, a few years later in the maximum security, visiting him at Rikers Island, he told me how he had picked his passive name. It means stinky, he said in a puckish grin. It's like the smell when you piss against the wall. But Delroy was still just a friar then, a young chicken in Kingston's passive parlance parlance, even after he had killed a few people in the south side. He was a minor soldier in the political wars, and once the election was over, he was nothing but a petty criminal with the, with the police breathing hard down his neck. So he came up to Brooklyn and regrouped the Renkers with a ragtag assortment of old friends from south side streets and American homeboys like Norman Hallwood. Hallwood. He rode the crest of the rave of the crack wave, acquired a dozen booming drug spots, a fleet of new cars, and an arsenal of fine firearms. The Renkers cleared as much as $50,000 on a good day, with special two vials for the price of one deals on a busy Saturday nights and holidays. But their violence was so extreme that the police eventually took them down. Delroy and his minions killed six people and wounded 17. Now it was Norman Alwood's turn to feel Delroy's wrath. They say it takes more heart to beat somebody than to stab them or shoot them, said Conroy Green, musing about why, Delroy's, why Delroy chose to disciple Alwood the way he did. I guess it's easier to pull the trigger off a gun. So they lit into the youth and beat him unconscious. When he came to and began to whisper and wrist, Kenneth Manning got vexed. Manning was in his 50s, the oldest man in the posse, and a relative of Delroy's uncle from Kingston. He walked over to the boiler for some scaling water and poured it over Alwood. Manning was kind of, you know, <laughs> laughing. Um, Conroy Green recall. Manning was kind of, you know, <laughs> laughing. Conroy Green recalled. The kid's skin started to strip and he started moving again. Kenneth said, Oh, you're not dead yet. He was laughing at him. After that, we left him hanging, chained to a beam. He died sometime during that night. The men drew straws to see who would dispose of the body. Jamaicans are intensely superstitious about being around the dead. Delroy ordered them to dump the corpse in a section of his new York that belonged to the rival posse called the Forties. This gang hailed from a PMP neighborhood in eastern Kingston named Rockfort, and the Forties was then raging a war over drug turf in Brooklyn with the Renkers. Island politics added an extra vicious kick to their Brooklyn vendetta. Delroy wanted to make it look like a 40s killing, Conroy said. So he wanted us to shoot the body since he said that otherwise the cops in Jamaica would know that Renkers did it. We had a reputation for beating people. A sanitation worker found Alwood's remain in a dumpster three months later. The corpse was frozen stiff and difficult to identify after the mutilation done by the Renkers. But Janet Alwood knew it was her younger brother. She had been waiting through the winter for his body to be found. It was not until the spring of 1987 that, Brooklyn, that police on Brooklyn, not homicide, were finally able to arrest Edwards on a gun charge that stuck. 
they had been dodging him, dogging him since 1982 when he was charged with slaying the only witness to his father's murder. He was acquitted, but the police and most Jamaican community thought Uzi himself had killed his father, eager to take over the ganja business from Lloyd Edwards and was business that Lloyd Edwards had going in his little grocery store in Crown Heights. In the summer of 1989, Delroy was tried on multiple charges of murder, assault, and conspiracy to distribute cocaine. It was a federal trial, the first successful prosecution of a Jamaican party leader under the racketeering, influenced, and corrupt organization statue, RICO. It took a team of more than 20 field federal agents and New York police to finally get Edwards off the street. And when the jury found him guilty on all 42 counts of the indictment, the prosecution team held an impromptu, impromptu celebration. A few months later, he was sentenced to 501 years without parole and given a fine of over $1 million. None of this had any impact whatsoever on the street in Crown Heights except to open up Delroy's former turf there to a host of competing dealers. Conway Green and a dozen other rankers men went to prison for much shorter sentences. All of them had cooperated with the prosecutors. Green had been their star witness, so they placed him in federal witness protection program. And when he comes out, he'll be given a new name. He has been a model prisoner. And when I went to visit him shortly after the trial, the guard left us alone for the afternoon. We sat in an orange carpeted room with vending machines, no bars on the windows, and the sound with the sound of birdsong fluting in. It was sweet but mournful background music to our voices. Conroy looked studious that day with his rimless glasses, and he chose his words with care. He called me sis, a Jamaican term of endearment. I was one of the few people who accepted his collect calls from prison in the empty months after the trial. Conroy still had a few rabbit charges pending, so he refrained from talking about those cases. But he was open and articulate about the things he had done with Delroy Woozy Edwards and what had what and what it had been like to grow up in the rough Dunkirk neighborhood in Kingston and then come to America as a teenager. Dunkirk is a PMP zone in downtown Kingston, and it was already an outbed of gang warfare by the time Conroy was growing up. His parents were hardworking people who tried to steer clear of the violence. His father drove a bus between Kingston and the countryside, and when some of the pass- his passengers gave him a pound weights of ganja from their cultivation, he would give these to the Dunkirk gangs to sell. Conroy thought this was what gave him and his family cool runnings, good standing in the neighborhood. His family, his man's family is cool runnings, good standing in the neighborhood, whatever that means. Conroy thought that this was what gave him and his family, his man's family cool runnings, good standing in, in the neighborhood. But the tribal warfare intensified so terribly in, in the late 70s that his parents left Jamaica for good and moved to Albany, New York. Shortly after the bloody 1980 election, Conroy came up to join them, and in the summer of 1986, he was sent to Brooklyn to visit a cousin. Jerry met Delroy Edwards, who was just beginning his brief run with glory. I saw this young guy with all these people around him, Conroy recalled, and I thought maybe I could get into, it, get into this, too. I told myself, it can't be all that bad. Was it talked? That first, who's it thought that first night I met him about the drug game? How we survived being in shootouts and keeping from getting arrested. And he talked a lot about Southside. How the politicians didn't even give him the gun at first. The first gun the rankers had down there was a one pop they made out of bicycle angle bars, the curvy kind. You cut them with a curve so it's shaped like a gun. Then you load a spring on it. With Neil and put in the bullet and put the bullet in it. Delroy said they fought after Tel Aviv Posse, which was PMP, with that one pop until they started getting guns from the JLP. Two little 38s. He said everybody wanted them 
and this caused a lot of cutthroat. Who are the guns ruled? All right, so me, I'm going to just make a little reference here, so because um, the one pop I was even talking this morning with my family, with my wife especially, and telling her, we were reminiscing about the days in Jamaica. Hold on, I probably finish reading this now. No, it's a couple of pages. So let me just reminisce right here, so. And I was talking about the place where we grew up in on Mountain View. So where I grew up in Mountain View would be considered out of east. You know, out of near Rockford where they talk about the um the I uh, wish which one of them said let's say come from Rockford. The forties come from out of Rockford. And that same one pop where they make out with the gun that they make out of um bicycle handle. I remember one night, as I, I tell the story about the night we got held up, when the gunmen came at the house um, on Mountain View, we had a shop there. And it was Christmas Eve, never forget it. And that made a lot of Christmas. That was probably the prologue or prologue or whatever they want to call it, or prelude to my Christmas. Eve's because I never liked Christmas Eve ever since then. But the men came, we did just, we had just finished watching Hawaii 5 I never forget it, Hawaii 5 was a kid and they went around to the front of the house because the shop was on the front of the house and the living area is around to the back of the house, but it's all attached in one. And um, the front is right off the sidewalk from the street. So you walk straight off the sidewalk from the street into the shop. And then you have the shop area, where, where the area where the goods are, so to speak, on the shelf behind you, serving this. And then behind that, now you walk into the house where we live. And I remember everybody went out after watching OIA 5 and then suddenly everybody running back in. My uncle, um, my mom, the helper, both host of family members running back in and screaming, Dali. Dali, who was helping with the cleaning and washing, I guess. And I remember running, because I said hide, gunman, gunman, hide. So I remember running underneath here, there. Well, first I remember running around to the back of the yard. And I ran around to the back of the yard. Uh, that's when I saw about, I don't remember, but a couple guys come, was already there waiting for us. And they had the one pop. Never forget it, these ugly, terrible looking, the term is like haggard weapons. Some haggard, yes, I remember the shininess, the, 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 the chrome of the, of the thing, the chrome of the, um, the handle, or the silver part. And it was haggard, um, what should I say, crooked, you know? And I'll never forget it, and my mom, we run and there was the guys waiting on us with their guns. And my mom ran like almost same time behind, in, she was right behind us and she just set herself between us and the gunmen. Them. And I remember she put out her arms wide, as wide as she could with her like a small self. And, um, but she didn't seem very big to me at the time. And, um, she bawled out, she, she spread her arms wide and she's like, and bare her chest and she's like, kill me but not kill me, pick them, which translates to kill me but don't kill my children. Never forget it. And she was like, kill me but don't kill me, pick them, kill me but not kill me, pick them. And she was trying to protect us and we were there like scrambling and the guys with the gun and then I think that distracted them. And maybe the one pops, because they didn't fire a shot. I don't remember them firing a shot. I don't know. I think there's some rumor that they did shoot after my uncle or my sister who was running up the, ha the alleyway beside the house car. They now jumped the zinc fence, which was one of the biggest things we always talk about. How the heck you guys got over the zinc fence? Because the zinc fence is sharp, rusty zinc at the top. You know? In fact, it's zinc so that nobody can jump it. <laughs> you can jump over it. It's protection. It's the, the zinc at the top that protects the property. And they went over that zinc fence, both 
my sister, I think, and my uncle, or my sister alone, leaving my uncle. I don't remember the story. I'd have to ask my uncle about that. But I remember my sister got over that fence door, and she came up the, up, the, up the hallway, so they were running after her, and she went straight up the lane. And I remember that lane, and I saw that lane, and I have a video of that lane, and some pictures of that lane that I took in September of this year, within no, no, October. I took them not even a month ago when I was down in Jamaica and I stopped. And I'm really happy now that I stopped there because at that house or at that yard. But although many people, my family were saying, be careful, you shouldn't stop there, you have to be careful. I'm happy that I have those photographs to remind me that, you know, this really happened. But yeah, my mom ran out. She was like, kill me, but not kill me. Them. We distracted them on them. We ran back inside. I remember running from place to place. The house wasn't even that big. In fact, looking at the house now, it looked well small the other day. But back then, it seemed very big. I was running from place to place. And Dali, she keep somehow just blowing up my cover because she's trying to hide wherever me hiding. And she big and fat, so she just keeps sticking out. And I think we actually ended up in a bathroom, all of us in this bathroom. And when we reached in the bathroom, we realized that my, other, my brother, and my, my little brother and my sister was already there, my other sister. And I think someone else was there, some other family member. And my mom was there. And um, while we were there huddling and hiding, I remember seeing the blue lights flashing in the ceiling. And when I saw those blue lights flashing in the ceiling coming through the window and in and 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 and, 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 and you know it just painting itself along the um the the, the 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 ceiling, I remember that thinking that must be police and that it was a police. The police was already on the way there. The police was actually working almost in parallel <laughs> to the gunman. Apparently they knew that they were targeting our shop that day. They were down by a place down the bottom of the road and the word was that they were gonna come by our place, come try and rob us and whatever else. So the police were just a little bit behind the gunmen so they didn't get much time to settle where we were. So as soon as everything started happening, the police was right there and I remember seeing the flashing light. It seemed like much longer, but it wasn't that long. And the police came, and I remember these police officers in radication looking close, like jump out like soldier. The, 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 the big black boots and the pants got inside the boot, and, and they had these big chopper looking guns. And me, as I, I was probably no more than seven. Eight year old, six probably, six, seven, eight. I remember looking and, you know, was just, that was life. I, I don't think I was even traumatized. I really don't think I was traumatized. I think it was just, oh, okay, that just happened, right? And the following day, my father took us downtown to buy Christmas presents. That was the first time I ever, and the last time I ever got Christmas shopping with my father, I remember. And he took us to buy Christmas presents. And I, I remember liking a construction truck, a truck that, uh, like a dumper truck. I think it had a, had a dumper back, like a toy truck that had a dumper back, but it was big, big, big toy truck. One of the big, you know, one that you can push around and play with. And um, I think it had a dumper back, and there was one that had like a roller, like a cement truck with a big rolling tank that I liked. But I think I got the one with the dumper back. And that was my toy for Christmas. And that was a lot of money then, but I got it because I guess my father, there's a, there's a, a saying that my father actually was down at the bottom of the road with them at the bar. And actually me have bought the man them around and didn't know that they were planning to come and rob our own sh our shop, his own property. But my father was always, uh, he was always kind-hearted like that. That's the term I'm going to use now, that he would always go into a bar. If you go into a bar, he would be like, buy around, buy around for whoever is in the bar. 
that was his thing. I remember growing up, whenever we would be driving from around the countryside doing deliveries with him, and he would go into certain bars when he come through junction between St. Mary and St. Andrew. We always come through that junction road and we reach up to a place, call it Aquarius. There was a place that make chicken, the fried chicken. Everybody stopped there for the fried chicken, but there's a bar across from there. Anytime him step in, man, the junk, you see the junkers around the counter, look up on the face, bright up, because they know they're getting a free round. So that was that. But that was, I just had to mention about the chopper. The, um, sorry, the, um, the homemade one pop. Maybe that's why they didn't fire any shots that I can recall, because it was, was, was just one pop. You know, they came with guns though, I know that. But they didn't fire any shot that I can recall. Maybe the one pop, I don't know, up the road. Maybe, I don't know. Anyway, I'm going to continue the reading now. So, the, 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 we talk about the one pop. You cut them, so they curve. You cut them with a curve, so it's shaped like a gun. And when you load a spring on it with a nail and put a bullet in it. Delroy said they fought out the Tel Aviv Posse, which was PMP with that one pop until they started getting guns from the JLP. Two little 38s. They used to call it 38. He said everybody wanted them and discussed a lot of cutthroat who are the guns rule. Conway started working for Delroy soon that, after that summer night. Drawn to the done by the promise of money and respect. Both men had been on intimate, on intimate terms of violence since their youthful days in Kingston and both knew that being affiliated with a violent political party from Kingston could only enhance their standing among Jamaicans in the street of New York. Conway understood the 1980 election as a watershed for the party, the time when young men like Delroy Edwards made a name for themselves. Being a youth down there during that time, the killing was like a natural thing. Conway and I talked mostly that day about violence in one shape or another. The reality of killing as opposed to the cinematic versions of it that he and his crew had grown up with. The ever the ever the evanescence the evanescence way that Kingston familiar mercilessness mashed with the Hollywood images friends cut their teeth on as youths. He saw that even though the movies didn't necessarily engender the violence, they framed it. They gave it style. To an outsider, it might look like, damn, these guys are mean. But being from Jamaica, you see it growing up. You see it in all your life. Even before I killed somebody, I felt like I had killed before. I think maybe Hollywood had a part in the rude boy thing with the movies that they put on, like certain Westerns. Jamaicans act out a lot of that stuff. Want to be tough like outlaws. Even Delroy, every time he would shoot somebody, he would say, hey, you just got another notch on your gun. All right, before I go any further, no, I gotta finish it. When I, sh when I shot at people, I felt like I did it before. It wasn't like I was trembling. I was trembling and asking, what is this I'm doing? It was like I was into it all along. And I think that's just from social settings, from growing up around all that violence. The way Jamaica was with politics, the way it was when I was a youth coming up. All right, so let me just pause this and say, an observation here. So if we're going to blame Hollywood, and let's just say blame Hollywood. If Hollywood, and, and this is not being facetious, this is actually being trying to examine the thing. If what we saw in Hollywood, the crime, the, 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 the violence, the, 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 the acceptance of violence in Western movies, you know, the spaghetti Western shows, the, the heroism that come from shooting people and all of that, if that is what framed Jamaican society to some extent in the 70s and 80s, what if what we were digesting through our eyes and ears was that of love and peace and harmony and productivity and building. What if we were watching documentaries about um, success in Africa and the continent Africa and in countries in Africa 
or successful black people doing successful things? What if that was what we were consuming? What would the culture be then in the 70s and 80s? Because this is simply saying the impetus of a lot of the criminality and the crime and what framed the crime, the, 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 the violence that we saw in the, 60s, the 70s and 80s was Hollywood. You know, Scarface, um, you know, The Godfather, that kind of stuff. So if that is what frame it, what if the movies that were supposed to, that, what if that, those movies didn't exist? What if the only thing that people could watch and consume was vegetable? They couldn't consume any pork or any beef. You know, so I guess it, you are what you eat, you are what you watch, you are what you, you consume through your eyes. And which comes right back around to what I've always believed and always said, that people must be careful what they watch on television. When somebody says, oh, I'm just, watch, I'm just watching a, 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 manifesting itself inside you as to who you are and how you perceive and how you or you or you interpret things that you understand so you have to watch and consume things that's healthy for your psyche this actually confirm what i've been saying for a while now so i'm gonna pause a little bit i probably have to stop and see if i can stitch there's about one two three pages more to finish this chapter from Babylon to Brooklyn. And then the next chapter is called Groundation. But I want to take a, a pause. Yeah, let me keep going. I might have to take a pause though. But well, let me just keep going. But that was just a thought, an observation that you need to be careful of what we consume through your eyes, through your ears, because that is actually dictating our mental health and it and, cle and clearly it was um that diet that um formed the the culture the street culture in jamaica are probably it was one of the meals it was the it was the the mac bacon <laughs> you understand me it was the big mac it was a big bacon or the baconator that was part of the diet that caused some of the sickness in Jamaica back in the day. So anyway, I'm going to prepare for go for a walk, it looked like. So I'm going to just pause here, so I'm going to stop it so I don't lose it. So I can, and because next thing I lose all of this and then I'll try and stitch it together. If not, then I'll just have a part one, part two. One love, soon come. Look like I'm able to keep going on this thing so I don't have to have a part one and a part two. So let me keep going. Actually, I, I'm actually reading the follow-up or the continuation. Probably I should do it in two pieces, you know. No, let me keep going since I'm almost done anyway. Um, on the 20th of October. So whichever date I started, this is just probably some couple days ago. I'm going to continue. This, um, so what I'm doing, I'm recording on a recording app and I'm going to upload to the podcast app. I'm actually this time now actually using a, a, a mic, a, head, a earphone mic. So it might sound different. I'll roll back. I think it's for somewhere around the 30, 32 minute mark. I did this, so I'll figure it out. See it soon. All right. So continue. It, oh shoot, can't barely see anything. And I'm actually using my reading glasses, but the dog bite this one up. Jeez, all right, let me try. It is just after Labor Day 1992, I'm sitting in a small room in the downtown Manhattan headquarters after Federal Bureau of Investigation with the agent Bob Chacon, Chacon, Bob Chacon. He's setting up a VCR so we can watch a video seized by the FBI in December 1990 when police and federal agents raided the Brooklyn headquarters of a posse called the Gully. You're not going to believe this thing. 
Chakan says. It's really amazing. The videotape was part of Gully's arch rival. The videotape was part of Gully's arch rival stash home movies of high crimes like Posse Dances and the annual West Indian Labor Day parade down Brooklyn's Eastern Parkway. But the video Chakan wants me to see was made in Kingston during one of its last treats in quotes that the gully put on for the sufferers at home. These treats were held every Easter, a season of great celebration in Jamaica. In the days of slavery, Easter, like Christmas, was a time when masters might give their slaves a new article of clothing or a tiny ration of meat. Now the gully passes down Eric Chinaman Vassal was continuing this tradition with funds derived from cocaine and heroin instead of sugar and rum. Eric Vassal, Chinaman, started out as a petty thief in McGregor Gully, a tight-knit ghetto settlement in eastern Kingston that was fiercely loyal to the People's National Party. He migrated to Brooklyn in 1981 and began selling first ganja and then powder cocaine. Soon, he was the only Jamaican party leader to branch out into heroin. And this turned out to be a brilliant entrepreneurial move. After the New York police initiated Operation Pressure Point to drive heroin dealers out of Manhattan's Lower East Side, Vassal reaped a whirlwind of profit from the brisk smack business on his side of the East River and he shared his luck with the people back home. Vassal had a string of colorful aliases, including Chinaman, because of his half-Chinese ancestry, and Brooklyn Barry, for his standing in the borough. He liked to give his heroin catchy names to like Obsession and No Way Out. His posse troops calling him the IRS because of his habit of taxing them for funds to buy VCRs, Walkman, tape decks, shoes, clothing, food and guns for the Easter treats in McGregor Gully. They were, only, they were the only bright spot in many a gully's sufferer's bleak year. The time when a school child would get a new shoes or a passing member's baby mama, baby, baby mother, the mother of his child, I put in bracket, received some clothing and money for her child. The guns that Vassal sent down were another matter. He called them vote getters. And that's in quote, vote getters. That was the name of the guns. And they ensured that the violence tearing the gully apart would only escalate. But that was just another of the contradictions inherent in the passive system and it was momentarily obscured by the joyous partying that went on around these streets. The scene Bob Cahoon cues up on the VCR is a beauty pageant for preteen girls filmed by Krat Vassal, Eric's brother and public relations man. Krat had panned his camera out over the packed, clear-lit night lit night crowd in the gully in the gully's soccer field then closing on the stage where the girls paraded in their best dresses some wore frilly ruffled pastel concoctions that reminded me of white first communion dresses and others and other contestants were decked out in slinky polyester but each one was wearing a statin as a satin sash across her budding breast inscribed with the name of whichever posse soldier had sponsored her. There was Miss Sean, Miss Juki, Miss Everett's, Miss Bulleted. No, there was no Miss Bulleted. Chakan was visibly rattled by the girl's prepubescent sexual vibe. And I too recognize that unsettling mixture of innocence and vampishness that lets you know how mercilessly short their, their childhood, childhood was going to be. Meanwhile, Whitney Houston's voice 
throbs over the sound system, proclaiming that no one can take away her dignity. The next tune is a soul version of Bob Dylan's Knocking on Evans' Door. It's ballad, it's ballad for a, a gunfighter. Chakun and I shake our heads over the aptness of the song. He points to the girls with the sash and says, Miss Juki, and tells me that, so he points to the girl with the sash that says Miss Juki, and tells me that Juki himself wasn't long, wasn't long for this world by that time. Just after the treaty was blown away by a rival dealer as he stood at a payphone in Brooklyn. A Juki, a Juki, 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 a Juki, Miss Juki. Miss Juki, okay, that's uh, totally different from Juki. So Miss Juki, all right, and Juki get blown away. Juki get juke. Anyway, just before, just before the, the winning beauty queen was announced, a little girl steps up to the microphone with a prepared speech of gratitude for Eric Vassell, even though he's far away in Brooklyn too. We can remember the first day we had a treat like it was yesterday she chills. Oh, let me read another female voice. We can remember the first day we had a treat like it was yesterday she chills. This is the fifth year since Barry and and what? Shake and Daddy, Shake and Shake and Daddy crew. She's this is the fifth year since Barry and the Shake and Daddy crew. She had a hard time with the unfamiliar word. Yeah, me too. The Brooklyn streets were the gully were the gully posse. The Brooklyn streets where the gully posse was based. And the mistress of ceremonies had to pronounce it for her. From the United States of America have shown their love and care for the citizens of McGregor Settlement. We are great oh had to pronounce it for her. From the United States of America, have shown their love and care for us citizens of McGregor Settlement. We are grateful for this kind of togetherness, and we pray that this will never cease. The Shen Neck, the Taddy Crew, the Shenning Taddy Crew, words cannot say how much we love and care for you, Barry. You are extremely loving and caring, and that's what makes you one in a million. All right, so. Cocoon <laughs> had his own idea about what makes Vasso one, one in a million. Like the other federal agents and New York police officers who staged the 1990 raid in Gully's headquarters, he's still smarting over the fact that Vasso slipped through the dragnet and got away. Cocoon knows that Vassal is back in Jamaica, almost certainly in McGregor Gully, protected by the PMP and the sufferers who worship him. And Cocoon knows what happened to some of the 42 other Gully men who were not so lucky and were picked up in the raid. One of them was a young man named Anthony Williams, who got the nickname Madler because he loves stylish clothes. Was the one who cut Madla down from the bar in his cell where he had hanged himself. He was a sensitive religious kid, Kakan says, and he felt betrayed by the whole situation. He had no money and was living day to day friendless. Vassal deserted him and he knew it. So he pled guilty in the case and promised to cooperate. But he got into a fight in Manhattan Correctional Center and they put him in solitary. That was too much. He read his Bible, wrote a farewell letter and reeked of, that reeked of remorse to his mother and sister in Jamaica. Then he left the Bible open to a passage about mercy for forgiveness and hanged himself. He was a sweet kid. Always smiling in the pictures of him we found from before the gully days. When the tape finishes, Kakan turns to me with a tired smile. I notice for the first time that his blue polo shirt has Jamaica embroidered near the collar, a souvenir from one of his working trips to the island. I ask him if he ever go down there for pleasure. Not on your life, 
he said. I asked him if he think Eric Vassal might be arrested in Kingston and extradited to stand trial in New York. He said this is pretty doubtful. When you see how dance like Chinaman are loved by the people in Kingston, you understand why they are untouchable. No one down there is going to cooperate with us to get them extradited. They are safe, totally safe. And that ends the first chapter from Babylon to Brooklyn. My book is all mushed up because I was carrying it around in my bag and the book is all dog years and I really just and mushed up because I had some stuff that crushed the pages. So I'm going to try and probably, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to actually laminate this in quotes with um, see-through tape so it don't get destroyed. I'm going to do that. Um, but after rush, I have an appointment in an hour. So I can probably read some of the other one. But I'm going to reflect back on today. So this book talking about the 1990s. Just today I got take off a walk in with my with my reading glasses and could hardly see. Anyway, just today I got a video forwarded to me and it's a security video. And in that security video, it was showing the, the execution of a Chinese businessman in Hanover. As they say three in the news, but I only see two actually with guns. All right, now let me set up the scene, how I saw it. I'm not going to do it as much justice, but let me roll back. So there was a news yesterday about um, a shooting that took place in Hanover, where a Chinese businessman was shot to death at his supermarket or his store, his grocery shop, um, during a robbery. And then today, someone forwarded me the security video of that event. So I'm watching this video. I didn't even know that that what that was what the video was. It would be good if people kind of warn you before you watch these things. But it wasn't because of the distance from the 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 shooting or and how these cameras pick it up. It um it wouldn't come across so gruesome, but you know what's happening. All right. So you see this Chinese man at a counter. Right, the counter is positioned right at the doorway of the shop. There is, he's attending one um, buyer, patron, whatever you want to call it, which is a male. And there are at least two other males in the store. So there's three males in the store. One is two, two per, well, I saw one person outside the store at the column. But it's when the fat shots start fire and it's, it notice that there's two people running away. So three men in the store, two outside. And I notice three men come in, there's two men come in the store, but the, 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 the news says three. I don't know if one of the men that were already in the store is one of the guys there. But anyway, what happened, and it's only two as he tried to escape also. Anyway, so two guys come in, the first one, the both of them with them the guns well brandished. They are skinny. They are well. Um, they have on sweater, you know, the, the regular black sweater and tight pants and the hoodie over the head and the mask, you know, because it's now COVID, so everybody wearing a mask. And they just the front the the first one in turn the store is just peppering the Chinaman with bullets. Pam 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 pam. You see the flashes from the nozzle, pam, even the guy dropped. In fact, because the sound is out of sync with what's actually happening, you hear the shots before, and you see the, the poor guy standing up looking at them, and you're wondering, is he getting shot and don't notice it? And then you see where his body is reacting to the bullets, where you, you know him go back and then you see he fall back and the guy reach over the counter and still peppering him with gunshot. <sighs> All right. Now, one got to, one, the, 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 clearly the people, two at the front run away, and the three men in the store, one that was being um, addressed, I think he ran out the store, which one would make sense. He would have been an idiot for running in the store. Having said that, I have to re-watch it because when the two men come in, the door is so narrow 
that them kind of cover the area that you would be able to come in through. So I'm going to think that he would have run to the back because he wouldn't be going against the gunmen. But the two of the men disappear. <laughs> One look up who is at a counter over on the other side. He look up as a kind of laughing, but he look up. And then him just lie down on the counter like him dead. That poor man can't move. <laughs> I can only imagine his story. If anybody needs to tell a story, it's him. So he just stoop over the counter, slap himself over the counter like him dead. And <laughs> what the, the second um, gunman do is just kind of drape him on his back, lift him up. <laughs> like him as a fool, come out of the way and throw him on the ground. So he throws him on the ground and then he walks out of the rail, out of the frame, walks around and goes around the other counter. He takes down that other counter from my, from my experience, being in Jamaica, that counter over on that side usually is where the, the rum and the, the, either the rum and things over there so are the facial products like the the women, them, them ear gel and them things, that's where that counter usually be, are the things that them use and rubbing at them head. And, but usually the rum, alcohol. So he's taking down bottles of alcohol, I'm going to assume. He comes around, puts it on the counter where the other guy you now who was doing all the shooting and killed the Chinaman, by that time, he had jumped, gone around. When you see he reached down, you see the face of the shot, the shot up man, you know, still in the frame. You can see it vaguely, but he's no longer moving. But based on the amount of shots that was peppered, this man would have gone already. And even if it was needles they were firing out of that gun, the amount of shot him get him most traumatized. And that guy now has picked out something out of the Chinese man. Um, a fine body, which we understand must have been his firearm. And he's going through the till, the cash register, and he's just picking up wads of what look like cash and pushing it every part-time body. They look so un unprepared because it was the only bag that they took out was when now the one that had gone and picked up all the alcohol. He comes around, puts his stick on the counter, and which are now both of them in the same frame, operating around the same counter. Put his stake around the counter. You know, his arm filled with buckles of alcohol, rum and stuff. Put that down on the counter. Goes in his back pocket, pulls out a recyclable grocery bag and start trying to stuff them in that recyclable grocery bag. Not a knapsack, not a real loot bag or anything by any... So the store is filled with everything. They have just killed a man. And the only thing they had was the gun that they came to execute the man with and a recyclable grocery bag. Oh boy. And they've packed the grocery bag with the alcohol and it looks like they were actually trying to put the cash register casing into the bag, but that wouldn't fit. And then they just exited. And that ends the reel. The news is that the man is dead. Yeah, he was running a store in Montego Bay. He recently moved to Hanover, out by Orange Bay, and took over this store from a family member. Some assumptions and some rumors is that there was some extortion, it was targeted, and apparently he, well, we can only assume that probably come from Mobile and said, no man, me now play uh, Orange Bay and Mobile. Me done covered by Mobile. So you can't mess with me. I don't know. But it was, it goes, when we talk about this book that we are reading, Born for Dead, the video that Kakun showed Laurie Gunst is a video of a pageant happening in McGregor Gully in Kingston. Them days when they were talking about Barnfordet and Kingston. Anova was bush. Anova was part of the paradise. Although Kakan said would never go to Jamaica on vacation. Anova, nobody would even consider crime in Anova more than somebody stealing some chickens or some goats. Not the kind of crime that 
just described from that video. That's Orange being another. Uh, there's so much to comment on everything that come behind this whole thing, but I won't go there. But there will be a lot of there's there's gonna be a reaction to it, you know. I mean, the Chinese business owners most likely will react, and justifiably so. I mean, the people going to react. The people in Jamaica, there's gonna be tension. There is this whole thing where the government gives Chinese business owners a break on taxes that is leaving a bitterness with young entrepreneurs that they can't break into the whole merchandising um, industry in Jamaica because they can't compete with the tax breaks that the government gives the Chinese. That's a total different situation and that doesn't justify what I just described and what I saw. At the end of the day though, and if you wonder if that was a person, a black man, and that peppering had happened, how we would feel. At the end of the day, the, divis the divisiveness is not something that I'm even gonna go down because that's a total different conversation. We all have our biases based off our expectations, but you can't use bad eggs and brandish everybody. I've had my running. I've been in Jamaica where, you know, you, you, you have, you're treated with disregard and you feel a way like this is the country that they say is our home, homeland. And you go there and you go to a business place and you're treated like shit. And you feel a way. And even me bringing it up shows that I have my biases in this, in this, on this fence. Having said that, it is not justified. Having said that, when you have them kind of criminality, they are gone. Them same guns that can be turned on you or anyone for you at any time. Them same kind of ignorance and sloppiness and that this. I mean, at the end of the day, this man's life amounted to a day still and some rum that can fit into a recyclable grocery bag. That's what they took his life for. It might be more, there's speculations, but of extortion and resistiveness to extortion. But at the end of the day, from what I see in that video, two little idiots kill the man, the big businessman, for some rum and a day's takeout at the cash, cash register. And that's even if it's a day's takeout in there. They wait until 4 something in the evening so them know say money must in a cash register by that. You understand? And the amount of cash they were pounding in their pocket tell you that money was in the cash register. I see them take up because the guy was pounding so much money in his pocket for the second guy to come round with the, with the rum and still go in the register and find more. I see him pick up some paper looking stacks. I'm wondering if some IOUs him take up and they realize him can't cash in on the IOUs. Because the other guy must have taken out all the money by then. But I see him take up some paper looking stacks that don't look, necessarily look like money, look like some IOUs or some receipts. But the idiots are robbing all things that they can't ever use. And this is how people you have to carefully their life in Jamaica. You tend, people tend to lose their life for foolishness. Frankly, foolishness. Not, not, it makes no sense. It, it, at least if you, you know, some, so it's like, at least if you're going to lose your life, lose it for something. But you lose your life to these idiots for foolishness. And the whole thing about born for dead. Now we're going to talk about the guys among hungry. Yeah, maybe there's some hunger. But rum, Rum, rum at the rum side they went to, you know. Maybe they're going to use the money to buy food, but regardless, it's the rum they went to. They went to the alcohol's part. So some of the time you can't even say they're using the money to feed family. Or, or they're doing this, this, this enterprise of violence to feed family. Because sometimes it's just you go drink some rum and go gamble. And go pee it out. You understand me? You understand me? Go cat it out. And that is the problem. So, we have a serious issue on our hand. It's us, us, meaning us, the good, the, the us that want productivity and unity and prosperity for all, versus them, 
meaning the idiots. And how I figure it out, I don't know. But I'm going to end this now because I'm coming up on the one minute mark, the one hour mark total. And hopefully, this thing I record decently. One love, stay blessed. And we're going to move on to chapter two in a few.